This is Epicenter, episode 167 with guest Peter Harris. This episode of Epicenter is brought to you by Jax. Jax is the user-friendly wallet that works across all your devices and handles both Bitcoin and Ether. Go to jax.io and embrace the future of cryptocurrency wallets. Hello and welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Brian Fabian Crane. And I'm Meher Roy. Today our focus is going to be on the music industry and how blockchain technology could perhaps change some of the models in the music industry. We are talking to Peter, who is the founder of Resonate, which is a project that seeks to create a music streaming platform that is owned cooperatively by listeners and the artists themselves. So before we start, perhaps let's have a bit of background from, from Peter. Peter, can you tell us a bit about your background? and how you came to be interested in the music industry and blockchains. So, yeah, my background is as a web developer since the 90s, and I did a lot of projects for musicians. Um, and I was also a uh, bedroom DJ and music producer. So I was often uploading content to all the digital distribution platforms, um, you know, sort of just like right after Napster hit. So I kind of got this... Uh, interesting perspective of working with a lot of clients who were in the, uh, who were very well off and very famous in the music industry, um, as well as up and coming startup um, musicians like you know garage bands and stuff. And then my own experience of of trying to uh, you know build a career online um, with my music, and so I, it, it was all of these kinds of different experiences that that uh, had been percolating around for quite some time, and then when the Ethereum crowd sale happened in um, summer 2014, it all kind of started to come back and gel. And I started to think about, ah, maybe this is the uh, the solution that we've been looking for. That's interesting. So, because when I was reading about Resonate and going through it, I was wondering whether this was something you kind of started independently of blockchain or and then later you discover blockchain and kind of said, okay, this makes sense to add this in here. But it was the original inspiration for Resonate and what made you say, okay, we can do this. There's something here because of Ethereum and because of what you saw happening in the blockchain space. Yeah, there was, there's a direct thread um, that, that connects those things too. And then what happened actually, when I started um, getting going on Resonate is I hit this wall that I think a lot of people did where we realized, oh, well, actually, you know, the transaction speeds and throughput and all that of Bitcoin is is terrible. You can't actually do anything <laughs> and, uh, you know, beyond like a currency. Um, and so I kind of imagined that it maybe would come back later. Um, but uh, in uh, 2016, I uh, was doing lots of uh, workshops and um, speaking and events and stuff. And so I had a lot of exposure to the uh, big chain folks. And that's when my perception started shifting, like, oh, maybe this is actually possible to do now because the 
the big issue there, you know, to do anything music related on a blockchain is that, you know, if it's anything other than like selling a track, there's just such a massive amount of data um, that, that, you know, the, the Bitcoin paradigm just wasn't going to work. Um, so their, their technology um, really seemed like the best way to go uh, in terms of being able to really deal with the massive data sets that we would um, create as well as, you know, transaction speeds and all that stuff. Cool. Well, we're going to get into technology in a bit later. And of course, also we'll link in the, in the show notes to our episode we did with the big chain DB guys as well, or with Trent. Now, the, the big problem you're trying to solve here, right, is that you're trying to find a better way that musicians make money and monetize uh, their work. So I'd be really curious if you could kind of run us through the history of, of how historically musicians have monetized their work and how that has changed with different technologies that came along, you know, whether that was CDs, peer-to-peer file sharing, iTunes, or, you know, most recently, um, the streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Music. Yeah, I mean, it, this this could this one topic could easily fill an hour um, because there's been such massive disruption uh, across the board. In a lot of ways, I think that the music industry is kind of the canary in the coal mine for digitalization and changes in technology and how it's really just decimated um, uh, the the business and a lot of livelihoods in the process, um, while also liberating too. It's been a strange kind of um, dichotomy. So, you know, it used to be that the the vast majority of recording happened through major record labels because it was so expensive uh you know and that's that was the kind of the big first wave that happened is that digital recording allowed people to break free of that so you didn't need to spend fifty thousand dollars to record an album you could have five thousand dollars worth of equipment in your house and make an album um now it's even less than that and so that was kind of the first wave and then of course napster um and and peer-to-peer um changed everything overnight. And so that was sort of the, where the, the starting point for me was, was that it was, I was living in LA and had a lot of clients in the, in the industry there. And they were all kind of asking us like, what's going to happen next. And it was really clear that the recording industry just didn't get it. They didn't, they, they thought they would be able to um, put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, that they could just, you know, throw a bunch of lawsuits out and it would all just go away. Um, they just had no clue what what had happened. And so that was this kind of obsessive question for me was, where is this going to go? And so you mentioned the industry has gotten decimated. Does that mean it's become harder for musicians to make a living and make money today than it was in the past? Um, well, like I said, there's that there's a strange sort of dichotomy around it because, you know, in, in one sense, it has created opportunities for people that are outside the system to self-produce and self-release, self-distribute their work. Um, but what's happened in that, at that, in that, during that whole process is that the, uh, the consumer trends and behaviors have changed so dramatically that it's become almost impossible to make a living just from recorded music itself. And if you look at the, the numbers, um, and why this is one of the points we, we try to make about the why the monthly subscription model is terrible is that if you if you look at it, it's about as an independent artist, this is not even on a label. Um, 
your fans would have to stream a song on Spotify at least 150 times in order to equal the cost of a download. So there was this brief period of time when um, iTunes took off and we had digital downloads as the alternative, like that here was the good alternative to um, needing to go out and buy CDs. But then as consumer behavior started to really dramatically change, um, there was this moment at which um, we, there, the, uh, the technology around streaming had also um, gotten robust enough to be able to deliver a, a product that could actually function really well. But it seems that it, it, my impression of it is that the industry kind of jumped onto it, jumped onto that bandwagon because they were really desperate to find an alternative to piracy and torrents and stuff. And so they just kind of went for it. And because they were going to get an ownership stake in Spotify immediately, and they had that that hope of uh, an IPO down the road, um, I think it seems like nobody really kind of looked at the business model. And this the this notion that you have to listen to the same song 150 times um, to, to, to equal the price of a, of a download is just, it's a bad business model. It doesn't, it's almost impossible to make a living from recorded music. Is what you're saying here, the problem is that Spotify is just too cheap? I think the it, it's it's yes and no, because a, a big part of the issue is that it's the all-you-can-eat model. Um, this notion that you can somehow fairly remunerate people when you've got some folks that listen a half hour a day and some people that have it on six hours a day. And so you, you, there's these wildly different listening habits and, but there's just, you know, it doesn't, I don't think there's any way to reconcile the math to pay people fairly. So that's, that's part of the issue. And then it's that, like I said, that the, this notion that somehow just having access and occasionally listening, um, it's not really, it's not really a, a, a dependable income stream um, because you have to, you know, you have to really get hardcore. You have to convert people into hardcore fans in order for it to, to even get close to um, the kind of money that, you know, artists used to make off of physical goods. So uh, you mentioned that you would need the users to stream a particular piece of music 150 times to make the same amount of money that you would make if, if, if there was a download. So how do I interpret that statement? That means suppose I sell a song over download, I might make a dollar. And if I stream, then I, I need, um, then if one user streams, then I make $1 divided by 150 on that, on that song. Is it? Yeah, approximately. Yeah. I mean, it, the numbers are slightly different, but it's, yeah, it's basically that. So Peter, can, can you tell us a story of how you started Resonate? So Resonate kind of began out of a bigger issue of looking at uh, the new decentralized technologies like Ethereum and arts distribution, because that was the, the real vision that I had of where the internet was going to go back in the 90s. And I think that's what a lot of us that were around since then, we really saw the possibility that the internet was going to create this new distribution um, method. But then what happened is that we got all these silos, right? You know, we got Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple kind of controlling 
most of the the traffic. And so when I had found out about the Ethereum um, campaign uh, and looked into that, I realized like, oh wow, maybe here's a technology that could help disrupt all of that. And so I was very curious about uh, looking at some ways of of combining like arts and creative and cultural distribution through a decentralized system like this. And the initial ideas were like really much too large and much too complicated. And so I decided to focus on one one thing and and kind of narrow down into something really specific. And that was music because it was something I cared about and um, had been a part of for most of my life. So um, yeah, it's been an, an incredible journey since then because I got to learn a tremendous amount about the way things the way the industry works and uh, the way the technology works. And I'm still very hopeful that uh, this is going to lead us to kind of uh, a whole new paradigm. So in your website, I read that you are pioneering this new streaming model that you call stream to own. Can you tell us what, what that is and how it differs from the streaming models used in other places in the industry? Yeah. So where that came about was, um, Part of it was just like I, I had a, a burst of inspiration because I was listening to the same two albums on Spotify and realized that I was essentially renting these albums and I knew what the per stream rates were. So I knew that like they weren't really getting that much money and I was getting no closer to owning it. And then if I still wanted to go out and buy the CD, I'd have to then pay for the CD on top of already paying for the streaming. And that, that's when it the inspiration struck. Um, and so... I immediately pulled out a calculator because I figured out that like if you gradually come to own something, the more that you listen to it, you could probably break that down and into an interesting pattern. And I thought, well, geez, maybe you could take a dollar and, you know, being a fan of the Beatles, I went for number nine, number nine, <laughs> number nine, <laughs> and just for the fun of it and found that there was an interesting pattern that you could start at 0. 0.002 and double it and it got just over a dollar and so that's that was kind of the uh the birth of the model and the more that i explored it i realized that there was there's something there's a few, th few things that are built into it one is that like i was talking about in terms of uh, the problems around uh the existing streaming model with the ten dollar subscription and the way that this money gets divvied out based on different listening patterns is that you get there's no consistent rate. You know, even Spotify quotes um, on their own website that they pay 0 0.006 to 0 0.0084. You know, that there's this wild fluctuation in what their actual um, rates are. And so with Stream to Own, one of the benefits you get of this is that it's it's a fixed rate. You're paying based on where you are in that cycle. And th so there's no like, fuzzy accounting math in terms of how that gets calculated. So you get to lock those transactions into a blockchain so we can have a, an immutable ledger that says that's what happened, that's what was played, and that's what gets paid. Um, but then there's a kind of deep psycho psychology around it as well. And that was the thing that I felt like ever since Napster came along that I was kind of seeking myself was what's what's the alternative in this this era um because we, we went from scarcity to abundance uh, almost overnight and i i feel very lucky to be old enough to remember scarcity you know i remember like 
not being able to find music or that you'd have to have a certain, you know, have to have certain friends that knew about bands and a lot of stuff traveled by word of mouth. If you were going to listen to anything that wasn't on top 40 radio. And so that we suddenly went from scarcity to abundance where you could get anything. And I think the, the key thing that was missing there was what's the real human process of becoming a fan of something. And I think that's what we, with stream to own, that's something that we achieve with this model because, um, when you're starting out and you're just in the, like the music discovery phase, you can listen to the same song four or five times. It's you're paying less than a dime, but there, there's a moment when you become a fan of a work and you become a fan of that artist. And that's when I think that for most people, there's a recognition that like, wow, I really like what they're doing. I want more of this. I should probably give them some money. And I don't think there's been a mechanism on any of the existing services that has done that. There hasn't been anything that allows you to easily and seamlessly go from just checking somebody out and seeing if you like it to, wow, I'm really a hardcore fan of this band and I want to support them financially because I want more music from them. And I think that's something that we achieve with Stream to Own. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. So my, my wife is a writer and I've had a, I had a variety of discussions with her about the sort of, you know, pricing of books, because that also seems to be something where uh, it's just very inefficient, right? Because usually if one prices something, you try to uh, somehow get people, you know, who value something more to pay a higher price, right? So airlines try to get people who, you know, have more money, they, uh, you know, want some more confident stuff, you know, they get them to pay business class and then they pay a lot more, right? And, and or, you know, in a, in a football stadium, you know, sports, you, you have better seats and, you know, there's all kinds of differentiation. But then if you have something like a book, uh, it could be somebody who's just by the airport and going to the kiosk to buy something quickly on the plane pays like $10. But somebody who's been waiting for the next book you know, from that author for like two years since reading the last one and can't wait to have this thing pays the exact same amount, right? So that's something that's clearly inefficient because there's a lot of value that's kind of left on the table. And I can see something, you know, something similar here that maybe are actually able to capture, uh, capture more value from people who, you know, really value uh, that work. Yeah. That's the idea. We'll see how it works when we actually get it running. <laughs> <laughs> Still, though, there's an interesting question here. I mean, if you, if as an artist, I make more money um, with the stream to own model, I mean, presumably that means that the listeners, they end up paying more. Um, I mean, unless you think that Resonate as a platform will be much cheaper to operate uh, than something like Spotify or existing platforms. So do you think that the stream to own model because of that psychology described, it will make people happy to pay more for music or is there something else that's going on here? Yeah. I mean, there's, this is the, one of the big questions that we get asked a lot about the model in terms of how it's going to actually, um, you know, kind of work itself out when it's, when it's live and it's out in the market. And we've got uh, some infographics that show that, um, if you're an average listener and you're mostly listening to new music, 
you can spend two to four dollars a month listening to a thousand songs a month, which is the the average. Um, that's based on Spotify's average. And um, it, the real, real question is going to be is how many people are going to go uh, convert to like fans of specific artists during that phase and end up spending more because they go, they like buy a couple of tracks and maybe that goes up to five or six or $7. So there's going to be a lot of gray area. Um, certainly the heavy users, I think, could have um, an issue and it could end up spending more, but where that um, might be uh, okay is when you, when you look at like the upper end of the scale uh, and those are the, the people that spend um, higher than average amounts on, on music that are still going out and buying um, CDs or they'll buy they'll, they'll stream something and then buy the downloads. Um, they may represent the, the folks that are at, uh, at the higher end of the consumption pattern and that when we see like maybe more mainstream that they want to do something like um, set a cap at five or six dollars a month and not go over it. So there's going to be a lot of questions that we'll be kind of answering once we get it out and introduce it to to our, our community and, and start playing with it. Uh, but I do think that it has a, a possibility to I mean, it certainly puts more, it puts the issues back out and says, well, you know, here's a different model and this is about supporting artists. So you can, you can do that or you can go buy at the sweatshop. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. Now let's move on to the technical part. How does, what does Resonate as a platform look like? What kind of technologies um, do you use and what's, what's the overall architecture? Yeah, so at the moment, um, streaming is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's not, you know, there's there's nothing um, really new or sexy about that, that core functionality. Um, where things do get very interesting, though, is, is in the blockchain. And for us, that's going to be about a couple of different things. One is the metadata is to be able to put um, content into a blockchain so that that information could be used by other parties or could be um, ported off into different apps or in, used by different startups, or maybe it could go to Shazam or Wikipedia or whatever. Um, and so by having the metadata in a blockchain, you've got a lot of benefits there for artists. It's also like about securing copyright and stuff like that. Um, and then the transactions, like I mentioned before, to be able to create that immutable ledger saying, this is what was streamed on our platform and this is what gets paid for for it. So um, that's where things are interesting. And I think also there's going to be something around um, storage and distribution. Uh, there's definitely some hope that things like IPFS or storage or storage, I'm really not sure how they're officially pronounced. Storage. Um, storage. Yeah. Um, that they, they could be uh, an interesting um alternative that could, like you mentioned, you know, really drive the cost down. Um, storage certainly is advertising that, that um, they're going to, you know, they're saying half the price of Amazon S3, and that could be a big cost savings. And I think it's really cool too, that it's like, it's kind of going back to torrent in a way and that you're, you're uh, seeding files as listeners, as fans, um, but you're doing it in an ethical way that's not about, um, you know, stealing content. 
Um, so we'll see. I think that's going to take some time this year for that stuff to mature. Um, but where it really gets interesting uh, down the road is when we can fully evolve this into a DAO. And I, that's what I seriously hope will, um, that it will evolve into. That, and that's why the, the cooperative business structure is, is so important. That I think we do have the, the possibility that once, once somebody actually figures out how to make a DAO work, <laughs> that we could apply that to kind of technology to the community where, where, where it could really become self-sufficient and self-sustaining and, and maybe not even really need a, an administration um, in a traditional sense. Yes, I, I can definitely see that, right? If one thinks of Resonate as an organization that's owned by the artists and, and where they can kind of vote on what happens and how and this visibility on how uh, payments get routed um, and, and usage gets tracked. Um, but, but I guess at the moment, there would still be, I mean, payments would be, I would sign up with a credit card uh, it would go to the cooperative and then you would, how would that pay, those payments go to the artists? And, and is there a blockchain component in that? Definitely in terms of recording the transactions, um, if any artist wants to sign up um, or link an account to the, like their Bitcoin account, um, we could do uh, more instant, more frequent payments that way um, for sure. But the majority of people for a while are going to be on fiat. So um, we'll have to do the normal things like, you know, do payouts at a, at a certain amount, like, you know, to reach a $20 balance or something to be able to, to, to withdraw, um, just to deal with transaction costs. But I mean, I think even there, I mean, there's so many startups coming on that I'm sure, you know, of, like that are doing, um, stuff with international currencies and trying to route money more efficiently so that, you know, if we can get away from this three to 4%, um, surcharges that happen, um, then, would be in, in good shape to, to be able to make that a bit more automatic, but that's going to take a little time to develop. You mentioned before that you guys went with a big chain DB. Can you run us through how you're using big chain DB and, and what, what was the kind of, what were the criteria that you used to make that choice? So that decision kind of came about very organically, um, partly from just interacting with them, uh, being in Berlin and, and, you know, being at the same conferences and having lots of conversations with, uh, their developers and, you know, Trent and Greg and stuff. And, um, but I think there was also a lot of it came from seeing what else was going on in the space. And, you know, there's certainly like the, the most well-known project at the moment is, uh, blockchain, And it, it just seemed like it was overly ambitious to try to do uh, they're sort of doing everything all at once um from the very beginning and i thought that was a big problem or a big uh, mistake because the the huge thing around content with blockchain of course is identity you know uh, i often explain to artists who don't really know too much about the way this stuff works i say that that you know um if you lose your keys to your bitcoin wallet it's you're losing access to your money. You know, it's sort of like that if you lose your keys, you don't just lose your ability to get back into your house. Um, it's like your house disappears. <laughs> <laughs> and what's even worse than that is that there's like a, 
there's like a, an automatic beacon inside that house that's sending out transactions around the world. And so you, you just, you're never going to get back in. You're never going to shut it down. You know, if you were to try to kind of look at the way Bitcoin functions when it comes to identity and try to overlay that against dealing with content and, and licensing and payments and stuff, you know, it could be very, very dangerous if uh, musicians don't keep track of their, their access. So uh, projects like dot blockchain um, and others that were trying to solve that identity problem in the, in the short term, I thought that was kind of going to create some problems because it's going to take, take some time to get there. So that immediately kind of set the, the, the tone to be like, okay, so if we strip that out, what are we left with? We're, we're left with is that we're going to have a massive amount of data because that's what streaming is going to do. It's going to generate an incredible amount of data. Um, and at the most fundamental, you need metadata. You want to put metadata into a blockchain because that's the huge problem in the industry is that there are multiple databases and they're often inconsistent. And so by having a single point of truth that this is what, you know, that identifies what a track is, um, you can solve a whole lot of problems with that. Um, and you just kind of just strip it down to that. And so, no, you know, was looking at that and thinking, well, what's out there that could do it? It was really clear to me that the the really the two alternatives were media chain or big chain. And I think just being in Berlin, you know, it put me in regular contact with big chain folks. So that's kind of where that that ended up. Um, then there was another step that occurred in that whole process and that in the evolution of uh, that thinking was that they started to work with, uh, they were part of the Koala IP working group. And that, um, the Koala IP thing is, is tremendous in terms of really being the framework for dealing with music licensing and creative works and derivative works and all that. So the fact that they're baking that into the, the core of their tech is, is fundamental. Let's take a short break to talk about Jax. Jax is a multi-coin wallet created by the people at Decentral. Now in the past, if you had a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies, it was a pain to handle them. You either had to leave them on an exchange, which was insecure, or you had to have all these different wallets, which was a hassle. Fortunately, now with Jax, those medieval days of darkness, misery, and suffering are over. Jax supports multiple cryptocurrencies and new ones are being added. But it's not just storing cryptocurrencies you can do with JAX, but you can also exchange them directly from within inside the wallet thanks to their Shapeshift integration. And since there's only one seed, JAX makes it super easy to back up and sync to your other devices. JAX works with Windows, macOS, Linux, Android, iOS, and has browser extensions for Firefox and Chrome. So go to JAX.io, that's J-A-X-X.io, to download the wallet and get started today. We'd like to thank Jax for the support of Epicenter. Can you tell us what Koala IP is? Yeah, so Koala IP is is essentially about linked content and um, ownership and, and rights and rights transfers and things like that when it comes to creative works. And it's a, a schema that was developed out of the Link Content Coalition, um, and it uh, is is a perfect fit for the arts because you know, especially music, because you've got um, complex ownership structures, you know, in terms of like, um, who has rights in, in different capacities. And so that you could create a system that recognizes those rights, allows for transfers, allows for licensing. Um, and that, that, that 
that framework is the uh, that's the structure of what the qual IP is uh, is all about is is a huge win for us to to have that um, with big chain um, because it's it gets to be incredibly incredibly complicated when you think about like producers and songwriters and performers and engineers and and what have you um, uh, publishers collection societies are just you know it's a there's a lot of people involved sometimes on a single song, you know, there can be 50 different entities in, involved. And that's what a lot of what the Koala IP solves is being able to create a, a framework and a structure for um, dealing with those ownership rights. So in the, in the past, I think two years, there's a, there has been this, this movement in the blockchain uh, technology community about um, a attribute at like solving attribution of content on the internet right. like who produced uh, who created what content and then b figure figuring out a way by which um, yeah content creators could could be fairly compensated for their work and in the specifically in the music field like there, there's a project called ujo music that's trying to do something similar and uh, we're wondering like what is exactly the difference between your approach and like what Ujo Music is trying to do. Yeah, so Ujo is very well known because they did the first prototype of music on a blockchain. Um, the first really kind of project that got a lot of exposure, I think um, maybe peer tracks or bit tracks or something like that. Maybe those started first, but um, because Ujo was able to use a song from Image and Heap, they got a lot of exposure. And then they kind of did a made a pause and to take a look at, you know, how this was actually going to play out because the the Ujo experiment was kind of limited in the sense it was really just a consumer facing app um, for, you know, making a, a payment on a song with Ether, um, but it wasn't about like infrastructure. And I think where they're at now is looking at profiles and the identity part that I mentioned a minute ago. And so I'm actually going to be talking to those guys later this week and hoping to see if we can um, align our efforts to, um, you know, to not be kind of both inventing the same wheel. Um, and if they really focus on identity, which makes a lot of sense because they've got, you know, consensus has a U-port um, and that's a, one of the main driving things at consensus. Um, then I think that their creation of an, an artist um, identity uh, pod or or module or something, if you will, um, could be tremendous, and it could be beneficial to both Resonate as well as lots of other uh, players in the industry. Because that's like um, that's the hardest thing. The identity on the blockchain is just a mess, and if they can solve that, then I think um, it could really be really be tremendous. Peter, um, you know, it it seems like Resonate, right, is, is really about giving um, content producers, musicians, a way to, you know, put out their tracks, sell them directly, monetize them, and, and you know, make a better living out of that. But one of the realities of the music business is that you have the traditional labels that have enormous power. And, uh, and you know, we're here in Berlin, and in Berlin there is a, a startup that probably many know, actually, we use it with Epicenter called SoundCloud. And they have raised uh, almost two hundred million dollars, and and you know essentially to try to create a new uh, you know way for artists to sell music. 
and and yet um, at this point uh, they don't seem to be doing well, right? They they don't have a business model. The labels essentially would be able to sue them and shut them down. So so how do you think about that? Do you think that uh, success for Resonate will involve um, onboarding labels or working with them to some extent, or do you do you have more the stance that one just needs to build something completely separate, completely apart, and you know, kind of start afresh. Well, I think one of the key things that you said there was the lack of the business model, and I think that was the thing that happened with SoundCloud. And they, you know, they took they had a real similar trajectory to lots of other startups in the two thousands, um, which was that it was all about um, creating an incredible product building up a user base and then figuring out the business model later. Um, and they, they were, they weren't the only ones that, that kind of had that trajectory and, um, they solved an amazing, they solved a, a problem that in a really amazing way, um, in the mid two thousands, you know, cause everybody needed and all the producers really needed a way to make a portable player and to be able to stick it anywhere on the web. And so it was um, a huge success because they solved a fundamental problem, but you know, there wasn't a, uh, unfortunately there wasn't a business model attached to it. And, you know, a lot of the money came in and said, well, we'll figure it out later, but <laughs> then, then along comes Spotify and, and, and so then it seemed like um, they had to sort of try to, force that model onto their, their community. And, and it's just not the right match, uh, in a lot of different ways. So, um, I think that's, we, we've got, uh, um, a lot of reasons to be optimistic that we are starting off from the very beginning with a distinct business model. And we're also, you know, in, in some ways may not be entirely popular in the, in the sense that like one of the big problems that SoundCloud has had is that um, is is over takedowns um, because the way the community started off in the beginning was that it was really popular for DJs to put up mixes, um, but the longer that that went on, the more uh, problems they ran up against the major labels, and then they started to have to build in all of these technologies to do automatic takedowns, which has been extremely contentious in the community. Um, you know, for Resonate, we're starting off with only allowing artists to upload completely original works, not even cover songs in the beginning. And that's to try to not repeat that same kind of process again. It will be interesting to see like if, if that um, works for everybody. I think there's certainly um, some subcultures that believe that you should just be able to do anything you want online with content, um, regardless of where it came from. And so we'll see how that plays out if, if, uh, if everyone's willing to kind of adopt this new model that's about, ultimately it's about fairness um, and making sure that, that everyone that's involved, you know, gets their credit and gets their payment if, if, if they want it. So hope that answered all of your questions. <laughs> sure, sure. Today's magic word is cooperative. That's C-O-O-P-E-R-A-T-I-B-E. -E. Head over to letstalkbitcoin.com to sign in into the magic word and claim your part of the listener reward. So 
one one more thing that i think differentiates resonance uh, resonate is uh, the cooperative structure that you are pioneering right so can you give us a brief walk through about what is this cooperative structure and why you chose it so yeah i mean i think that it, the two sort of major influences that came into play when it came to that decision was looking at um the, the uh, decentralized techs of of blockchains itself um because as I often say, decentralized technology without decentralized economy is ultimately meaningless. Um, it's kind of pointless to have one without the other. And so when I was just kind of brainstorming around that, I thought, wow, actually the, the closest business structure we've got to that is, is the co-op model. So that seemed to, to make a lot of sense. And then it was also just um, that I've been around um, with web startups and, and sites for such a long time. Um, it was on the periphery of a lot of stuff and had a startup previously here in Berlin. And, and so was, I've spent a lot of time looking at what's gone on, what's happened. And, and I think the big problem with tech, of course, is that you, know, um, you need money to develop. And depending on where that money comes from, the money that helps you develop is often going to dictate how you operate, um, just to put it as simply as possible. And so I wanted to, to see, you know, if we're really going to do this and, and, um, make sure that it doesn't get corrupted, like other services have in the past, that the co-op structure was the way to go because it's about, um, democratic ownership, democratic controls. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this kind of plays out. Um, now that we're in, dare I say it, the Trump era. <laughs> so, I think this is going to become like the most, if anybody's watching, this is going to become like the most used expression. The scream. <laughs> <laughs> the most used emoticon. Yeah, so we'll, anyway, what I meant by that was that we'll see if, if, if uh, you know, as as we kind of are, are kind of confronted daily with this, this, um, probably the most corrupt regime that's ever existed in the history of the human race. Um, that if, you know, that really kind of drives some yearning for the alternative. And, and I believe that the co-op structure is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the idea of a co-op and, and blockchain, of course, is, is not a new one. I know there's been a few, um, a few projects, a bunch of interest in that. Uh, one of them, which we've had on ages ago, years ago, was a project called Swarm uh, with Joel Dietz. So, so they they were sort of a crowdfunding platform for um, crypto projects, and and one of the things they founded uh, they funded was a, a co-working space in Brooklyn that was sort of cryptocurrency driven, and that was also organized as a cooperative structure. And I know there's there's been a bunch of people sort of looking at that. So I'm it's it's great to hear that you you know you're taking that forward because I agree I think it's a it's a it can be a very nice fit with a decentralized model and especially when it's about fairness uh, and it has goals that are kind of different from just maximizing revenues for the owners then it could be a really nice fit. Yeah. So just briefly, I mean, with Big Chain to be right. Uh, uh, there's still the question, you know, who runs the blockchain, who operates the blockchain? Would would that be also 
members of the co-op or how is the control structure on the technical level organized? I think it's going to take years before we'd be in a position for members of the community to host um, the the blockchain itself because I think the data sizes is going to be too large. I mean, you just look at Bitcoin. Um, what what are they over? What are they at now? Hundred plus gigabyte. Um, you know, for the for the music world, that's just you know, music consumers. It's just ridiculous, and I think that there's a possibility that. Um, the resonate blockchain when it comes to metadata and recording transactions and, and content and everything else is going to be many, many um, times many exponentially larger, we'll just say. So, um, but I am confident that Big Chain has a good model through IPDB to, you know, start off with this uh, federated distribution model to, to, to reconcile that problem that, you know, we're talking about really massive data sets. So not everybody's going to be able to host that, but let's look at um, what kind of structure can we put into place that's going to make sure that it that it can't be corrupted in the same way that Bitcoin can't be corrupted. And I think they've put a lot of thought into that, and I'm very confident in the team there that um, they're going to be able to guide that in the right direction. Um, so I think it really is, you know, just time will tell. I mean, we we are talking about something that's very, very bleeding edge. Yeah, okay, so you guys will be using IPDB, which is sort of a public version of BigchainDB. Um, yeah, that's also operated by a, a foundation, um, which is kind of like a cooperative, a little bit like a cooperative. Yeah, I mean, at um, least it says that the that it, the ownership structure is, is fixed and it can't be um, diluted, it can't be controlled or taken yeah. over. And that's super important. Now, you guys are running, uh, I think you call it a crowd-owning campaign, uh, although most probably would think of it as a, like a, oh, a crowdfunding campaign or like you guys are raising money, right? So can you run us through what that looks like, you know, what you guys are raising money for and how you are going about it? Yeah, so it's a crowd-owning campaign because if you participate, you become an owner. Um, the minimum is five uh, dollars or five euros, and that's the membership as a listener to the co-op. Um, as a musician, if you're supplying music to the con uh, to the platform, that that's what earns your share. So musicians don't actually have to do that. It's really just for listeners. But then we have the possibility of um, having investor shares, or very very soon, um, maybe as when this podcast is live, um, that language is going to change to supporter shares because it's a, it kind of fits a bit more with um, what the co-op model is about. Um, we can get into details about what that means. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the notion that it's a crowd-owning campaign is really kind of, in a way, it's for marketing purposes. It kind of get people excited about it. But um, the reality is, is that there's no real end date to that at all because for the life of the project, anybody can become a member and anyone can buy shares, buy additional shares, uh, because that's going to be an ongoing part of the way that the the, the uh, cooperative will have to function. So it's um, it's a crowd campaign for kind of for marketing purposes, but really this is a fundamentally different model, which is about um, the ability for the crowd to support a project that has um, you know, a long road ahead and that um, 
just has a completely different concept behind it. So it's not like pre-ordering a product that gets shipped six months to a year after you, you know, you put down your 30 bucks. This is a bit, a bit different. And I, the exciting thing about this is that um, it's coming to fruition rather fast. Um, we started the campaign uh, three months ago and we're very close to actually releasing something for our members. It's a little bit under wraps as to what that is, <laughs> but um, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty close to, to putting something out. So this, this cooperative model com- combined with the crowd ownership and you said um, in your website, you say one person, one vote, one share. So does, does, does that mean like even you get like one vote for having come up with that idea and uh, build the cooperative in the first place? Yep. That means I could be voted out of my job and I will walk away with nothing. <laughs> I don't, yeah, this isn't, this isn't like your normal startup where the founder has a hundred thousand chairs and, and uh, is rich on paper. Um, this is a totally different paradigm. Tell me like how, how you're going to recruit developers to build uh build this cooperative model. So you might be fine with that kind of arrangement where suppose I go to the website today and I put in $5, I have the same ownership stake in the cooperative that you have and you have spent like, let's say, at least a year of your life doing this thing. Now, now you're going around recruiting somebody else and you're asking them to put two or three years of their life building this thing. Um, How are you going to incentivize them if those guys are going to get the same number of shares as I am. And I just spent five minutes on the website. The ownership share is mostly about voting and the ability to participate. And we have a a voting structure and a profit structure that's very similar to uh, most other worker consumer co-ops. And how that breaks down is that we have a uh, two kind of classes. You have, you have the worker class and the consumer class. Consumers are the listeners. The worker is two groups, and that's the musicians who are supplying the content, and the and the other one is the people who are building it. So, um, if we hit a point where we get enough investment coming in to where people can go on salary um, from the from the uh, investor shares or supporter shares, then the the people who have been volunteering on building the platform will then, you know, just have a job. Um, but if we have more of a, like a slow growth model where it's really based on a volunteer effort, then as uh, workers in the platform, they get to share in, in profit distributions. And so we have a profit distribution block that goes um, strictly to people to build it. So it's not necessarily that your one share means that you can't ever possibly make money um, because through the through profit distributions, um, that option uh, does does exist. I'm still curious though uh, how the economics here work exactly. So let's let's assume that Resonate is going to be a huge success. You guys, you know, let's let's just say that through um, 200,000 people become members. So you guys raise one million or something like that through through those member uh, member um, the fee the membership fee. And now it's going to, and, and, you know, somehow that's enough to build the platform, right? And now it's starting to make a lot of money. Uh, I mean, how does that then work? 
do does that mean the member share could increase in value and now instead of it costing five euros it costs a hundred euros because you know that the, the payouts from the profits is, is so high that the value of those shares has increased a lot or, or how would that mechanics work here it's possible that it'll change it a little bit, but the, the value of the member share isn't necessarily tied to the overall success and, and profitability of the company. And if you if you go to our site, there's a section um, uh, of diagrams that shows some charts that explains um, how the profit distributions work. So uh, in, in your example of if we've got 200,000 members and, and that reaches a million revenue, what that does is, or not a million revenue, but um, a million uh, to to support the development, that could co cover most of our developer costs, um, and then allow us to to kind of have stabi stability as an organization to you know acquire more members and more talent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the it's really in the profit distribution that the the value is then created, and so. If you go and take a look at the site and take a look at some of those charts, you can see where how that all breaks down. But um, basically, for let's say that we end up with uh, a million in profit at the end of a particular year, um, it's 45, 35, 20 is the split. So 45% of those profits uh, would be 450,000, would be distributed among the musicians, um, 350 among the, uh, the, uh, the fans. And then the rest going to the volunteer community that's building the system. <clears throat> Sorry, my cold is like thrashing my throat a little bit. Um, and so we we split those up uh, based on um, consumption patterns. And um, so, like, if you're a huge artist and you're you've got like a million streams and downloads, you're going to get a higher percentage of profits. You know, if you if you as a consumer you spend two hundred dollars a year you're going to get a higher percentage in dividends than someone who spends $10 a year. And that's totally typical and normal among worker consumer co-ops. Um, I was a member of one called REI in Seattle years ago. I spent 800 bucks in the store. And when I got my distributions, they gave me the option to either cash out or go back to the store and spend, spend that those earnings on something else. And I think with resonate, we'll see a lot of musicians or a lot of listeners rather that will, will do that. They'll, they'll take their profits in, in more streams. And that's one of the great things about the, the models that it kind of can help recirculate some of those profits back into the, the musicians. Um, so I think it really remains to be seen kind of like what, um, what the consumption patterns are at that level of, um, users, um, and what the costs are. I mean, we, we've got a lot of projections and and charts and graphs around, you know, how much is this going to take to operate and and all that. But we won't really know until we're we're actually running. So there's a lot of there's a lot of questions there. But that's where it's really cool that it's a co-op. Is that if anyone wants to um, take a look at the inner workings, they can. You know, we're not going to be secretive like other services out there that hide their contracts. <laughs> We're going to be open and transparent about everything that goes on here. Yeah. Um, 
and, and so pe people want to get involved. Of course, we'll link to uh, to the crowd owning campaign and to the others uh, to other resources. But is is there any any particular help or support or involvement or type of people that you're looking for and that you're kind of wanting to join the effort? Well, we're always in need of developers. Um, uh, at the moment, we've we've been very very lucky to have um, some folks that have been able to put in some um, some time without salary um, for quite a, quite a while. Um, but we're you know always use more our code support. Um, there's a lot to lot to be done. Um, of course, spreading the word too is is really important. Just you know passing it on, letting people know. Um, for musicians, getting them to sign up and create a profile and maybe upload a couple of tracks to uh, to showcase um, on the, on their on their profiles um, can can um, really help a lot. So there are a lot of different ways to get involved. There's a lot of info on the site about how you can do so, and I think it really it's it's going to kind of come down. I think you know to kind of circle back to that whole political thing at the moment is that I think that. Um, we may be at the cusp of a sea change in the way that folks look at things like this, and and I think that's ultimately the 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 uh, the answers to whether Resonate's going to succeed or not is if people really want a different world, if they want a different model, uh, because uh, things are getting crazy out there, as we see in the news every single day now, and um, and I think that's what we're presenting is a different way forward. So, you know, just by way of comparison, Spotify spends $2 million a month on advertising. So um, I don't know if a co-op model can compete against that, um, against the VC model. But if you look at the fact that Spotify is essentially not in business to make money uh, on music, they're in business to build a network and have an IPO. Um, you just have to, yeah, you just have to ask yourself like, who's benefiting from this? You know, are the people benefiting or a handful of investors and some CEOs at some major labels? So whether Resonate succeeds in the long term, I think is really going to depend on some of these kind of bigger, broader societal issues because uh, it's all connected in a lot of ways about, you know, do we want to own the platforms that we use? Or we, yeah. do we want to just, you know, use free shit that data mines the crap out of us and then <laughs> um, makes a handful of people insanely, maddeningly rich? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's no question, right, that the whole monetizing of content or so many of those, the internet infrastructure in a way has, has become very centralized and, and different approaches are needed. And I think uh, music and content is is a great example of that. So I'm I'm really excited about what you're building and the kind of vision you're pursuing. And I just wanted to point out because people maybe weren't uh, you know just listening to this, they they wouldn't be able to to be aware of that. But uh, the website is really fantastic, and I think there's so much great uh, blog posts and, and background information and infographics there that's really uh, exploring and explaining. Uh, all of the different aspects uh, of Resonate. So I was, I was really impressed and we can really see that, you know, somebody has been thinking about this problem for years and somebody has been putting 
a lot of work, or, you know, people have been putting a lot of work into all different aspects. So I think that really shows. And, and uh, so I think that would be very interesting for people to check that out. Yeah, there's, there's tens of thousands of hours involved in, in where it's at at the moment. Um, and uh, a lot of people that have contributed to, to making that happen. And it's been really, really inspiring to have started with uh, an idea, uh, you know, in its most raw form and to see it develop to this degree and to see so many people respond to it. We've got, I don't know what the exact count is, but over 850 musicians and over 120 labels, um, indie labels um, that have signed up. So uh, it's really exciting to, to see the, um, the interest and um, just hopefully we can keep it going. Yeah, well, thanks so much for coming on, Peter. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have, of course, links to lots that we talked about here uh, in the show notes. If people want to check that out, you know, they'll know where to go. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. So Epicent is part of the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find this show and other shows on letstalkbitcoin.com. And uh, of course, if you like the show and if you want to support us, the best thing you could do is leave a review on one of those centralized platforms like uh, <laughs> like iTunes <laughs> so that that helps new people find this show. So thanks so much and we look forward to being back next week.